Welcome back to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. I am here along with Dr. Brian Goff. Hello, Brian. Hello, Sheila. And Dr. Jenna Lejeune. So good to see you. Nice to be here. I'm so excited you for guys. today's talk. I know. Sky Fitzgerald, just completely dreamy in terms of his scope of work. He's an independent documentary filmmaker based in Oregon, and he's explored individual stories in the midst of ongoing political and social tensions for over 20 years. He's documented the effects of political unrest, poverty, physical tools of violence, and more on people, and he's gone to more than 20 countries altogether to do this great work. This guy's most recent film is Lifeboat, and it earned an Oscar nomination and more than 20 critical film awards. All right, you ready, Brent? <clears throat> You've already been recording this. This is like my Robert Plant moment. Oh, <laughs> totally. Just totally outed for how. I have how, to say, I told Jason you're Robert Plant. Oh, God. Because <laughs> it was, was so just, wonderful. Was it was totally, so, no, he's uh, now in love with you. He now thinks oh, you're the bee's knees. Like, honest yeah. to God, I still, like, I think about that moment it's and just I feel so like this humiliation. So oh, just cooing about Robert Plant before he came on uh, a remote interview and he was plugged in and heard it all. On the ISDN line. Mm. It was like so humiliating. That's <laughs> wonderful. I love those. The, the rest of the interview, I think my voice was like this. Hey, so, so tell me about, will you ever have a reunion? Asking the questions one should never ask. And you're thinking, really not sexy. I'm thinking, <laughs> not sexy at all. I know you're not. I'm, I'm not thinking of like that. all the ways that could have gone worse for you, though. <laughs> you know. So, you guys, I want to just introduce Sky as this person that I was. Do you remember when um, Fred Rogers said that line, when things are tough, look for the helpers? Oh, yeah. When I mm -hmm. think about like when I'm having a tough time in the world, I often bring you up, Sky. Because, no, you managed to put yourself in what I call sort of the epicenter of suffering. And you do it again and again and again with your documentary films. And the way that you are in the world and what you present is always this feeling of hopefulness and optimism. And I was wondering if you, if you do that on purpose, like is part of your belief system that if I'm going to present this suffering, I also want to provide a little bit of, of insight into who's doing the best work out there. Oh, wow. What an opening, Sheila. Yeah. Uh, yeah you know, I you. go right to the heart uh, yeah, of that's it. Right. Well, that's very <laughs> kind. Um, thank you. Um, I'll unpack that as best I can. Um, I, I think you're, you're probably onto something there. Um, I, I think for me, at least, we live in a day and age where you know, there's a lot to be upset about. There's a lot to be concerned about. There's a lot to be scared for both ourselves. And I think the next generation, the generation after that. Um, and, and so I tried to move through the world in a way where I observe that and acknowledge it and, and almost embrace it while simultaneously um, choosing to sort of um, push to the forefront individuals who I believe are in their own concrete, sort of discreet way, um, living in ways that they believe they can change one small part of the world. Mm. Because I, I think that's how it happens, right? It's like mm -hmm. if, if you take on you know, world hunger systematically, we're never going to solve it. You can, you know, no one's going to flip a switch and solve that one, yeah. right? Or even climate change. But I think there are people in the world all around us. I think there's people in this room who are doing heroic things who are unheralded, um, who don't get recognized, and I think we just have to look for them. And I choose as a storyteller to really try to lift those people up and, and say, hey, 
look what one person can do. Mm. I want to move to your Oscar-nominated film, which is Lifeboat, and then the subsequent film, Lifeboat, The Experiment. You, I think, uh, for people who don't know the story, you learned about these refugees and, and the crisis that was about to occur in the Mediterranean because of the number of people that were attempting to flee Africa. And you decided to go on a boat with one of the rescue missions and witness the human suffering that was occurring there. So first of all, take us through the decision-making process and why you decided that this was a project worthy of your attention. And then tell me how you shored yourself up for something that was so unbelievably grueling in terms of a human being to witness other people jumping into the ocean and dying. Yeah, for, first off, the, the what, what initially led us actually to the Mediterranean story was the film that uh, preceded it, which was called 50 Feet from Syria, which we'd done a couple years previously. And it was on the tail end of, of that film that, I don't know if you recall the political history, but at, at that time, so it's 2014, 2015, the EU was getting ready to shut down the border um, between Turkey and the EU, which uh, uh, which really deeply influenced people going across the, the strait between Greece and Turkey. And um, so a lot of the, the people that we were treating in that, in that first film covering with doctors, um, they said that when that border was shut down, that the Syrian refugees would shift westward into the central Mediterranean. Mm. And so I started drilling down on that and doing due diligence, and we discovered it was already happening and that the mortality rate was incredibly high um, because the EU simply wasn't prepared or set up for the scale of the, of the refugees. And it, so it was, you know, asylum seekers from Africa. It was also Syrian refugees. It was from um, asylum seekers from East Africa. It was, it's a broad spectrum um, of nationalities. And so um, then during the course of the research, I discovered that to fill that humanitarian gap on that new humanitarian quarter uh, for asylum seekers, because the EU hadn't filled it, um, that small little NGOs, non-government organizations, had formed to civil society intervention, all volunteer, mm. purchased fishing boats, and had motored down to this area 20 miles off the coast of Libya to do what government actors weren't doing, which was simply to pull people from the water. Mm. This, Genoa, I want, I want to bring you in because where I started with this was, you know, look to the helpers. Yeah. And I think um, even on this grand scale what uh, he's done that's so brilliant is looked to how do I tell the stories of these people to offer some hope and some some action that we can all take as human beings, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that is uh, just such an important part about your work is you're not holding up these um, kind of shiny heroes. Uh, I think that's one of the things, that's one of the traps we can get in. We can we can kind of put these people who are the helpers on this pedestal as if they're made of different cloth than we are. And then kind of psychologically what that does is that makes us not responsible for our own ability mm -hmm. to make these profound changes in the world. And so part of your work that I think is so masterful is the the way that you film this is you sort of see these are just kind of normal, regular folks who rented boats who are just doing what is is kind of the human thing to do. You pull people out of the water when they're mm. drowning. Mm. And you don't kind of add a lot of 
production and shine to it. You're just sort of showing their story. And I think that is an incredibly important thing psychologically to help us be able to see, oh, I actually can be that guy uh-huh. yeah, in whatever version it is for us. Yeah, and the story becomes less like heroes rescuing asylum seekers mm-hmm. but humans helping mm-hmm. humans exactly. oh my God. exactly i love how you said that humanizes the helper and yeah. it humanizes the sufferer yeah mm-hmm. uh in a way that statistics i think don't do that right we hear big huge numbers like this many thousands of people and it often doesn't have the emotional or psychological impact that a story about an individual person who isn't that unlike me, just in extraordinary circumstances, mm. you know, would have. I, th- I think, you know, it's interesting, you know, going to on the festival circuit and, and sort of showing the film to folks. And, and of course, you know, awards are always nice too, but I have to tell you that, that um, some of the most uh, moments that have touched me the most in this whole process has been... Mm-hmm. When when individuals have circled back around to me and and told me how it's impacted, so so we showed Lifeboat at Mountain Film uh, in Telluride uh, a year ago where it premiered, and at the end of the screening, um, a gentleman asked what the previous film was, and we told him, and it had screened at Mountain Film a couple years before, mm. and he caught us at, as we walked out the door, and he said, "Listen, I'm a physician, and I want you to know that because of your previous film." I went and volunteered on the Syrian border with the same organization as wow. a surgeon wow. because I saw your first film. Wow, wow. Right? that's so Perfect. moving. And I've had a couple moments like that. And I think that goes back to exactly. this idea that, you know, um, you know, doing doing something that is going to fundamentally transform another human being's life in a positive mm-hmm way it doesn't take a hero it just takes an action exactly right? mm. yes wow, that's beautiful yes. uh you you have a lot of the time in your film with john castle the the fellow who is um running the ship and he's he had a line that just floored me it says who knows what's going to happen to them but we can only do what we can do as long as we can rescue some people that's worth doing your heart is where real thinking comes from I love that line so much because I often feel as if heart-based thinking is in this day and age just completely short-shifted. And um, I, I was asking the question about how did you, as a filmmaker, you know what the shot is that you want to get. And part of the drama is these people are going overboard. But as a human being, you're saying these people are going overboard. What do I do? So what did you do? Did you save them or did you just watch them have other people save them? So you're asking about the actual rescue off the water then? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that was a very real dynamic that, that we were up against during the course of filming. Um, you know, there were only two of us on the filmmaking team on this search and rescue vessel uh, simply because, you know, to get on these search and rescue vessels is uh, very difficult, to yeah. say the least. And, and because every hand is necessary mm-hmm. to, to run the operation, that it takes a lot of talking yeah. to, to work your way in. So, mm. you know, the second day of this search and rescue operation, we were suddenly faced with over a thousand people floating on the water. And, and you know, we we're a 30 meter boat with 16 crew members. Mm. And so... You know, we launched Zodiacs, um, and 
Um, you know, people are jumping in the water, falling in the water, getting pushed in the water. And we were immediately faced with that very question. You know, so the age-old documentarian question, you yeah. know, do you intervene or do you, are you there simply to observe? Yeah. And, you know, I had faced that question many times during the course of my career. But the reality is, um, for me and for my DP, Kenny Allen, when it's someone's life and, and you can see before you that, that they can't swim and mm. they're either going to slip underneath the waves and you're going to film that drowning or you're going to put down your cameras and you're going to reach as fast as you can to grab their collar, we grabbed their collars mm -hmm. because um, to us that was far more important than documenting their loss of life, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was a dynamic that was at play for us for about 48 hours early in the mission. And... You know, the, the ethics of it uh, just went away immediately. There was just no question what we were going to do. And, and you know, that allowed us to sleep at night, frankly, you know. Wow. And, and I, I often talk to colleagues about this. And, and, of course, I think the fact that our cameras were down in the bottom of the boats a lot of the time, you know, may have um, affect, deeply affected the film we made and, and maybe for the worse, right? Mm. But, but as a human being you know, post-fact, back here in, in my more normal life, um, I couldn't have made any other choice, mm. you know. It, and, it, and it feels consistent with the, the mission of the film that if you don't see these people, if you don't see this particular person as an asylum seeker and as a representative of thousands of people, but you see them as a human being, then you putting down the film is very, very consistent with why you're making the film, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. The language around asylum seekers, I even noticed that it, it seems like fresh language because they're not being called that anymore. Yeah. You know, the language has changed. The political rhetoric around um, refugees has changed so dramatically. And I, I wonder what you think about the current environment and the way that people who are attempting to try to save their own lives and the lives of their families is in the current administration, the way that language is being used to describe them, what it's done to people. Has it hardened them? Has it made them less likely to love, to get involved, to be helpers? Uh, you know, I, I wish I could take, you know, if I could, if I had a magic wand, I would wish I could just take some of the hard line uh, political rhetoricians and stick them in a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean for a couple of days, <laughs> and, and, we and, would then watch those and, then, and then have a conversation, you know, <laughs> with, with them about it. Um, but you know, yeah, the, the language has changed. I think, mm -hmm. I think for the worse. Um, and I, I really try to make distinctions. Um, you know, it's easy to group people, right? Mm -hmm. And then once you've grouped them, to anonymize them, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 so. Migrants is the current term, I think, right. you know, but I, I prefer asylum seekers, yeah. um, refugees. There are certainly economic migrants within that. But I, I tell you from our experience on, on the search and rescue operation, even those that hard right-wing politicians would characterize as economic migrants, you know, these were human beings who I talked to who, um, you know, told us why they were economic migrants. And um, they essentially had made a very conscious choice that um, with a family of three, for example, living on a dollar and a half a day with no health care, um, if they got a disease, they would die, right? And they were living uh, on a dirt floor shack um, with unclean water 
and a bowl of rice a day. They had, they felt like this was the best choice they could make to save their children's lives. So call them what you will. Um, They're human beings and they're human beings seeking a life of dignity. One of the uh, fantastic outcroppings of the documentary was the experiment, Lifeboat the Experiment. Talk about what that was and what the impact was on the people who participated. Yeah, so Lifeboat the Experiment is something that was just released um, throughout Europe, um, initially in in Germany, and then it's sort of been rolling out in, in other countries in the EU right now. So I was approached by um, Service Plan, which is the largest ad agency in Germany. I think this, this either the first or the second largest throughout Europe. And they decided that they were going to devote a certain amount of resources, quite significant, to trying to really get um, right-wing politicians and just sort of like the general layperson in Germany to really see um, economic migrants, asylum seekers, refugees, um, again and in a new way. And, and they decide to not do that through overtly political channels, but to try to do it through the heart, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like John Castle says yeah. in the film. And so um, they, they, the concept was to gather uh, your layperson Germans, um, a lot of them, you know, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, and to get them to participate in this experiment where they'd be put in a wave pool uh, on a raft for an undetermined amount of time and we had complete control over the wave pool, right? So we could control the size of the waves and the lights and the wind and, and even rain to some extent. Um, and then we would just put them through the experience of what it's like to be on a small raft um, with the feeling of being on the ocean with not knowing how long you're going to be on it. So we did pretty significant pre-interviews, then put them through this physical, psychological experiment, and then post-interviews. And then it's being released theatrically in front of major motion pictures throughout Germany and Europe, and then a pretty hard push on social media as well. Wow. So the people who participated seemed to, uh, some of them admitted to having really strong right-wing ideas about who, and they called them, you know, not refugees or asylum seekers, but they called them migrants, who migrants are. Talk about some of the shifts in perspective. Yeah, it was it was quite interesting, you know. I think um it was a it was a cross section of German society, right? And and I think, you know, it's so easy for for any of us to intellectualize these ideas, right? Um and I think it's it's a very different thing to 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 go out on the water, right? And to experience physically and psychologically what another human being experiences. You suddenly cannot um, you can't minimize the experience as easily. And I think you have to, it, it leads to this different depth of understanding. And so for many of the participants, I think they had a complete and absolute shift. It was almost like an opening of a door mm. where they hadn't really thought deeply about the, the, the what was catalyzing these folks to try this crossing and how desperate they were, that they were willing to undergo this level of suffering to try to reach a better life. And so I would say a good third of the participants kind of began thinking about it Mm. on a deep level and then have really now begun to engage in significant ways with the issue. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. That that kind of um, ability to to have a mechanism for teaching empathy, I just like <laughs> was I over know, the moon about I it. I know. Yeah. I know. If if mm-hmm. there was some way that 
that we could do that for, you know, our American public as well. Because the, the problem here is not that we aren't exposed to the horrors that are going on or the suffering that's going on with other people. Like, in many ways, our media is way more graphic and intense, and we see this kind of plight. It's in our face all the time. But it is done in such this sensational way that it's almost this mechanism of being able to distance ourselves. Mm -hmm. Wow, look at that, like, dramatic, horrific thing that that person's experiencing. I could never experience that. And so just by this very simple act of noticing what would it actually be like in your body Mm -hmm. to be on those waves, and I think a really important part of that experiment, too, is the you don't know how long it will last part of it. Like, that's a really important part of the experiment, I think. Just even that can really help like put yourself in the other person's perspective and that's what's key to empathy because mm-hmm. when it is too when the when the information or the graphics are too over the top what happens is it's too overwhelming for us and so we shut down you know unfortunately i'm very embarrassed to say it's my response when i see the really sad puppies behind the bars on the SPCA commercials it's too overwhelming for me I change the channel. Mm. And so we have to have these abil- this ability to teach empathy in a way that allows us to actually stay present with it, get the experience in our body, and then, really importantly, have the means to do something about it. So have a next step. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, Brian, I, I, I have been thinking uh, so much about how cool it would be to have VR for all of the people who are calling the uh, refugees coming through from other countries migrants and have them live in a virtual reality of what it's like first to mm-hmm. only have the dollar fifty, second to sleep on the floor, third to only eat rice, and then to live in fear of your children being raped or murdered. And the, and I think how how at that point could anyone have the the wherewithal to believe they wouldn't do exactly the same thing for their family. They would bring them to a better place. It certainly seems like it would normalize it, right? Yeah, To actually experience. It does feel like you have to have something relatable, Mm -hmm. like Sky you're talking about, like Jenna you're talking about. Um, But there also has to be a willingness to sit with that pain. Yes. To sit with that comfort. Yes, Right? Because it's like I think that sometimes we can – we can vilify uh, people who don't appear to be compassionate as like, well, they don't give a shit. And it's possible that they don't or they don't get it. (laughs) But I think it's also possible that, no, they do, and that's the problem. Yeah. That it's painful, and I'm not willing to sit in that pain. I'm not willing to have that experience. Mm. And so as a solution to that problem, I make them other exactly I make them right like not me they somehow did it to themselves uh-huh. you know the homeless person on the street why doesn't he get a job you know and on and on and on and a piece of it is climbing into the skin and feeling it but then I think another piece of it is like I'm willing to feel that 
you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of the problem when you see sort of the phenomenon of burnout in first-line workers. Let's mm-hmm. let's take, you know, somebody who's working in social services or something like that. Like, these are people who got into this profession because they care so deeply about the suffering of other people. But then if they don't have the tools and resources and the culture around them that helps give this message of a willingness to sit with that incredible pain, the only choice then is burnout. The only choice is to separate ourselves from the suffering and now they become other or they just become the quote unquote what is it? Economic migrant? Like that doesn't even make sense to me. Yeah. But yeah, and this so is, you're exactly right. The willingness piece of this is key with the empathy. And I think that's one of the things that makes Sky your storytelling about, um, you know, not only are the asylum seekers human beings, but the heroes, quote unquote, are human beings because that opens up the door for yeah. oh, there is something that I can do um, other than you know write a check or cast a vote. I I just want to end with, um, because I'm sure you have a ton of self-care tips that you or what you do to make sure that you're keeping balance and taking good care of yourself so that you keep having this bandwidth to bring us these remarkable films. Will you talk about that just a little? Um, Yeah, Um, I'm really conscious about... um, sort of the the cycle of films that I do mm. um, and I think I have to be because if, if if I weren't I don't think I would be able to keep doing them yeah um, and I don't know if that will continue forever or not obviously not forever but I don't know <laughs> how long it'll last but that's the only reason that I sort of can regenerate yeah. myself internally to go do it again yeah. so right now for example I'm in pre-production on the follow-up to lifeboat and yeah I'm not willing, I haven't been willing to go shoot it until I feel fully charged. Oh, so smart. my system, call it what you will, is, is, <laughs> is not much of a system at all. Um, it's that I, um, I talk with a, a very small coterie of, of trusted colleagues who have done similar things. Mm-hmm. And we can sort of drill down on the experience with, with none of the bullshit, you know, yeah. with just the reality of what it's like to go into a war zone or what it's like to be on a search and rescue operation and, and, and really, you know, have the, the scale of suffering around you be, be really distressing on a daily basis and, and to have the stakes be life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I unpack with a very small group of, of folks. And then, and then the other thing is I make sure that um, between my commercial work, before I do another film like Lifeboat or 50 Feet, I... Um, I spend enough time at home where I can just ride the hell out of my bike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. that and so much. And I know much. that sounds simple, but it's it's a meditation for yeah. me, and it's a way of getting healthy physically and psychologically. Yeah. Where I really just get back into my body. Yeah. And and um, it it sort of somehow stabilizes me. Yeah, totally. Uh, once I've been riding my bike for a handful of months again. I love it, Sky. Thank you again for your incredible work, and again the. Uh, film is called Lifeboat and Lifeboat the Experiment as the follow-up. So good to see you.